This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Moorfield. That's me. This is episode number four for October 2011, and our topic is The Glitch in the Grid. This episode is not a spoiler-free discussion. If you have not yet seen the film and do not want plot spoilers, now would be a good time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. All right, Ken, um, today we're talking about Eric Leeser's Glitch in the Grid. Yes, no the in there, just Glitch in the Grid. Glitch in the Grid. No one, the. Okay. one the. There is a the in there in the middle, but not at the beginning. Well, being from Ohio, you know, I'm used to putting the in front of everything. Right. Know, the Ohio State University, so... Yeah, well, we there did we just have the thing, not thing, but the thing. There is the grid, so there's only one grid, but glitch, I guess there's more than one glitch, or couldn't be there a could specific, be. yeah, there might be, but there's only one grid, or one particular grid. So, great. So, what is this film about? <laughs> well, I laughed a little bit to myself, not out loud, when you said this is not a spoiler-free discussion. Because there was a part of me that said, not that I know what a spoiler-free discussion of the film would look like, in part because it's very plotless, not necessarily plot-driven. Uh, the description that I have on the promotional material, you know, on the promotional card put out by the filmmakers describes it as three artists struggling against the grid of society find spiritual renewal. And what do you know? That's the plot description on the, of the glitch in the grid at, at IMDB. So basically the loose plot, two guys are making a film, but then their funding gets taken away and they go on a road trip to find a third friend who is apparently in a rut and they're going to try to talk him out of the rut then they have some talks about spirituality along the way and how hard it is to be a spiritually minded or an artistic minded person in the grid of um modern society that's about it plot wise one of the things that i found interesting about the film um and actually what drew me to want to even, you know, screen the film and talk about it, was it does have an interesting visual style when it's not dealing with the characters. It's like we get these scenes of characters, and in between the scenes we get these interesting stop-motion animation sequences. Not animation in terms of, like, drawn cell animation, but... Actually, some of the most interesting ones to me were there would be a field full of leaves and you would see motion 
in the leaves and they would form paths or like a hedgehog or something running underneath the leaves. Um, or they would form a grid and we would see the grid. And there was lots of shots of this white dove floating around and landing on things and leaving a mark, which at times I, I have to admit, I found a little humorous because it kind of looked like, you know, dove poo, but <laughs> you know, it, the dove that's was no the way to talk about the Holy spirit. <laughs> well, and I guess, you know, that is an interesting aspect of the film in terms of how it was integrating spirituality into this story, kind of a, you know, a fairly typical story of the, you know, the artist who has, run afoul of the production machine and is now trying to find his way. There were a lot of, you know, Christian symbols. Yes. Being in, in the animation that made it feel like it was a, you know, there was something spiritual going on. I wasn't quite always sure what the message was or what they meant, but it was like, Oh, there's a dove. Must yes. be the Holy Spirit. To the extent that I got a message out of it, you know, there there was a, a quote that one of them made towards the end when they're talking about Jesus specifically and religion and spirituality about Jesus broke the grid. Jesus freed us from the grid or something. Uh, so there seemed to be then a at, at least a stab or a meaning towards the idea of spirituality helping us to transcend uh, the mundanity of everyday life or the the trappedness or the meaninglessness of everyday life or the oppression of, of everyday life. Part of why I say a stab at it or, you know, I'm not sure about that particular meaning is that that didn't seem to actually, that was stated in kind of a dialogue, like one of the characters said that and presumably you know, believed that or espoused that. Uh, but I didn't necessarily see that translated in their own life. It's like, it's kind of like we're wandering around aimlessly, you know, stuck in the either ennui or the sort of existential angst of the age. And then we have these discussions of spirituality and it's posited that, there's a way out of that sort of meaningless existence and it has to do with Jesus and uh, that like they've found an answer. But then after that truth is revealed, that doesn't seem to me like they feel any differently or they act any differently. And I'm like that the grid has been broken. The grid is still there. So either Jesus hasn't destroyed the grid or maybe hasn't lifted you out of it, or if he has lifted you out of it, I'm not sure how that's any different. And that, in, and that might be a structural, structural problem with the film and that it happened, that kind of statement happens so close to the end of the film. Mm -hmm. Yes. That there really isn't any time for us to see a change in, if there is a change. I did think it was the, the one thing that I thought was a little interesting in terms of the, shall we say, the spiritual development of the characters is, again, and it happened toward the end, is there, there is a, a bit where they paint this car. One of, the, one of the guys has a car, and they paint it, all these pretty colors, and then they drive it through this big puddle of water. And I kept trying to figure out, why are they driving this car through water? I 
didn't seem, you know, in terms of the story, there didn't seem any reason to drive through the water, except that it, it is kind of a baptism type of moment. And then a few scenes later, we get this picture of a fishing boat. And fishing is like, oh, they're fishing for what? Fishing yeah. for men? <laughs> um, and then we get the Christ broke the grid. Um, yeah, it, it seemed that, yeah, I think a stab at is a good way to put it. They're trying to put in these markers. But at least to me watching it, it didn't seem as though they were an organic part of the story. Right. Well, or, I mean, I guess I'll go one, both one better. I don't know if that's one worse in that. I'd say in terms of being integrated in the story, I I sometimes am affectionately referred to by some of my friends and cinephile friends as the narrative whore, meaning I, I'm I'm not a big proponent of experimental film to begin with. You know, that is probably because of my background in writing that what I what really engages me in film, I know film is a visual, first and foremost a visual medium. But I, I always want that to be in service of a narrative, you know, or a story to be engaged, to engage me. I did find myself engaged by the animation, but I, you know, you're talking to the guy who got bored after the first five, ten minutes of Tree of Life, you know, uh, in terms of, of sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, who once described, or who described Tree of Life to some of my friends as, Two and a half hours of watching Terrence Malick's screensaver go from pretty <laughs> picture to pretty picture. That that's nice, and there's a lots of really cool images in there. But there's just something in my mind that no matter how pretty the image is or the visual is, if it's just like here's a pretty image, here's a pretty image, here's a pretty image, here's a pretty image, here's a pretty image. Uh, then eventually I just kind of shut down and sort of get saturated with that. So it's like, well, but, you know, so I guess by saying one better, I'm like, I'm not even sure there was a narrative mm -hmm. uh, for it to be integrated into. Uh, and that these little vignettes were just kind of glue to hold together a series of experimental animation pieces or animation things. Sure. And we've got a long history of that in film, say with musicals, where you have a very thin plot just basically to tie together a bunch of cool songs. Right. You know, to be really fair to the piece, I mean, the animation is great. There's some really interesting things being done with, you know, kind of animating nature that you don't see very often. And I, I was quite struck yes. by those, those scenes. But as you say, I had a hard time piecing them together into a narrative. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a bit of a, a challenge. So I was thinking about this lack of narrative. Uh, one of the, my pet peeves or one of the things that irritates me when talking to people about films, particularly films they didn't like, is when I perceive people criticizing a film for not doing something that I think the film wasn't trying to do anyway. That is to say there's a difference between saying, well, they tried to do a narrative and they failed and saying, I wish they had done a narrative because I like narratives. Uh, I threw out in discussing the pre show notes with you, the, the term mumblecore and asking whether this might not be a stab at mumblecore or whether I might even call it Christian mumblecore if such a thing exists. Uh, and you had sent me a um, article from the New Yorker magazine that was trying trying to yes, describe mumblecore 
uh, which many people have tried to do and, and um, had various degrees of success at. And the New Yorker article says, Mumblecore movies are made by buddies, casual and serious lovers, and networks of friends. And they're about college-educated men and women who aren't driven by ideas or by passions or even by a desire to make their way in the world. Neither rebels nor bohemians, they remain stuck in a limbo of semi-genteel, moderately hip poverty, though some of the films end with a lurch into the working world. The actors, almost always non-professionals, rarely say what they mean. A lot of the time they don't know what they mean. The movies tell stories, but they're also a kind of lyrical documentary of American stasis and inarticulateness. So plotlessness, I guess, is not a requirement of mumblecore, although the, this particular definition says they will sometimes tell stories, but are trying to focus more on kind of a lyrical documenting of the zeitgeist of the AIDS than they are about telling a particular narrative. So I guess for people who are listening, and if you're not familiar with Mumblecore, I mean, some of the famous examples, uh, uh, I've heard the film called Funny Ha Ha, or I believe Mutual Appreciation, but I can never pronounce this guy's name, Bujalski are common examples. The puffy chair was one. I think mutual appreciation was the was the one that I first saw. So I guess my question, you know, or my comment relating this film back to that and asking about, you know, is this mumblecore, is that I haven't much liked the mumblecore that people who do like mumblecore you know have liked those particular mm-hmm. films. Oh, another example a more commercial example that people will sometimes cite is the Ben Stiller, Greta Gerwig movie, uh, Greenberg that came out years, maybe a more commercial transition from mumblecore artists to more mainstream film. Uh, but it had supposedly had some of the qualities. And of course I hated that too. So, um, you know, I, it, I wanted to like glitch in the grid more than I did, but I've also been wrestling with the question of, you know, I can't really say that I didn't like it because it was bad. You know, did I not like it because it was no. bad or did I not like it because it was okay, but it's just not doing something that I, I like even when it's done well. And, of course, if you don't like a particular genre, those are the hardest to really distinguish between whether it's good or bad. Because, I mean, if you don't listen to rap music, sure. it's hard to tell the difference between good rap and bad rap. You know, if you don't listen to classical music, then it's hard to tell the difference between good classical music and bad classical music. So it's kind of like, yeah, as an orange, it's a bad apple. Or, or maybe it's a really good apple, you know. But I wanted I, I wanted yeah. an orange. You know, I think it's interesting, you know, looking at this kind of – stab at defining mumblecore. I mean, there are certainly aspects of the film that really fit. You know, we've got these, they're not rebels or bohemians. You know, the characters in the film aren't, you know, they really aren't all that rebellious. You know, it's not like they are saying the system's horrible, let's get rid of it. And they're not embracing, in a sense, their kind of hippie bohemian sort of life. They're, they're constantly trying to get jobs, but they can't. Um, a lot of finger pointing yeah. at the economy. 
you know, the economy's bad and, oh, that's making things horrible. Um, this idea of a semi-genteel, moderately hip poverty. Yeah, I mean, they're constantly needing a job, constantly talking about money, but yet they're driving around in cars with their MacBooks and, you know, booking Yeah, they fly a lot then, which is... <laughs> Yes, they're they're scraping for money a lot, but on the other hand, they have the wherewithal to have wireless internet in their apartment and travel all over the world. So, yeah, there is a, a bit of that. Um, this idea of a lyrical documentary, I think, gets at a, maybe some of the lack of plot that you know we've been talking about because the, there is a lyricism to yeah. the animation. And even to the the vignettes, these little kind of set pieces of ennui, that you know perhaps that's what what they're going after. And you know whether or not it's documentary, um, I think it's certainly sketching out the reactions of you know a lot of my mm-hmm. students that I see. Yeah, you know, that that that's sort of I don't know what to do. I mean, I think at one point one of you know, the character is saying things along the lines of, I just, I need to be happy without any real right. idea what that means. There, there's two things I wanted to say based on, on your description or based on your comments. One has to go back to this uh, very loosely tied into the 2008 economic recession. And, you know, in my survey of some of the comments about the film, I've heard some people use claims like, oh, it's very topical, you know, because it's this film about sort of economic oppression or being caught in the grid, and then uh, that's a very hot-button item right now. But I almost felt the opposite, which is to say maybe the timing was bad because, like, five years ago, people having that sort of hipster poverty would elicit a certain amount of sympathy But I think with unemployment being high and the recession and a lot of people hurting, that some viewers may be less prone to be have empathy towards this generation and more experience kind of frustration, you know, experience kind of frustration, which is to say there's a lot of people who are really seriously hurting, you know, stop your whining or things aren't necessarily so bad. Or, you know, there's nothing particularly unique in your hurting. And I think, too, being on the opposite side of the Occupy Wall Street movement, that has generated some pushback, um, concerns about the economy, maybe even anger about the economy and economic systems that enmesh and oppress us is a hot button object. But that the country is becoming more polarized, you know, in that particular way. So maybe it's a hot button issue. But that will tend to push some readers, away, you know, away or viewers away. And, I, you know, while I feel a certain amount of sympathy or empathy for the Occupy Wall Street movement, I consider myself one of the 99%. I, I do sort of understand the mindset and found myself feeling towards the people in the documentary like, golly, you're spending an awful lot of time complaining about how miserable your life is and how awful your life is. And relative to an awful lot of people, your life really ain't that bad. Oh, about oh, three-fourths of the way through, or maybe half, there, there was this interesting sequence where one of the young men is really kind of verbalizing and talking about uh, the various things he could do. He wants 
You know, he said, I need to be happy. I need a change. And what, what I found interesting about it is as he's saying all these things, he's saying it in a tone that it was, it was a very ironic tone. It, it was almost the tone of someone who has heard all of the speeches and all of the self-help talk. And he's just parroting it back. He doesn't know why he's unhappy, but he's heard a lot of things about here's how you become happy. And, and so he's saying all these things like, okay, if I say this enough times, I might believe it. I call it the Natalie Wood sort of self-actualization uh, attempts after like Natalie Wood at the end of Miracle on 34th Street where she has to believe in Santa Claus and she spends the last few minutes of the movie going, I believe, I believe, it's stupid, but I believe, I believe, you know, like maybe if right. I say it enough times, it will be true, even though I don't really think that. But And here might be, you know, a weakness, you know, if it's lyrical documentary or not, in that, yeah, there's lots of talk about the economy and the recession, but there's never... It's always like, oh, it's making life hard, but there's never really any discussion about any specifics. Mm -hmm. What specifically is it about the economy that's creating this problem? What might be a way to change it? Because we pick up the film after the economic crash, um, it's very hard to get any sense of was the economy causing this? Like, Because we don't have anything before to compare it to. And so, right. you know, they may want to attribute or lay some of their malaise on at the feet of the economy. We apparently had funding for our, this movie um, that we're working on uh, before the economy crashed. And then that sort of pulled out. But it's hard for me, given the extent of the stasis, to really honestly believe like, you know, were you really that much happier before the economic crash? You know, because I don't know that things go from uh, well-adjusted to despondent or stuck in that quickly or something like that. And so I, I wonder if maybe the economy is a bit sure. of a scapegoat for, you know, an, an easy place to hang your discontent on. But it's hard to believe that these guys being that stuck or that unhappy were six months before the film starts like, oh, we're all happy, you know? Which brings us to another part of this definition where David Denby is the author of this article from The New Yorker when he says they rarely say what they mean. A lot yes. of times they don't know what they mean. They tell stories, and yes, there's the lyrical documentary of American stasis, but also of inarticulateness. There's something wrong. I just don't know how to talk about it. I don't know what, I, I don't know mm -hmm. what is wrong. And, and maybe that's part of what it's documenting as well is an, an inarticulate feeling of. Yeah. Well, that ties into my second comment, which was uh, Denby has said, though some of the films end with a lurch into the working world, that is to say like a, maybe some good buildings or romans there doesn't necessarily have to be a transformation but some of them might end the narrative with a lurch into the working world or a small step towards adulthood or something like that and i was sort of expecting that towards the end where they talked about jesus breaking the grid you know or you know jesus transcending right. and say oh it's going to be one of those sorts of things in which it's like Maybe not, oh, we found Jesus and now we're happy, but at least maybe Jesus gives us a map or a light or something like that that 
shines a way out of whatever it is that we feel uh, stuck into, you know, to have some sort of lurch into world outside of the context of the film or the context of stasis, some sort of agent, agent for change, maybe not full transformation, but a first step towards change. And I kept wanting that and I didn't really see it. Right. And if I'm, if I'm struggling to try, I start thinking about the dove that is flying through the whole film and wondering if perhaps that isn't their attempt at this is that through all of these pretty, I mean, the color palette of the live action scenes is pretty dismal, kind of dark. But when we get the animation, there's lots of color and the, and the dove itself is very, very bright. Right. So, you know, maybe there's this idea that, you know, in the darkness, there is the light of the dove that if you can catch, you know, it flying or see it flying, that will lead you out perhaps. But I have yeah. to really work hard at that. It's sort of like uh, maybe for some people it's enough to just know that the dove is there, even if I can't see it or if it doesn't sure. lead you out. But I, so I wanted to ask maybe then uh, a question that I was thinking about once I threw out or introduced the term mumblecore in there to say there definitely seems to be a faith or a spiritual component in here. Even the advertising for the film says, you know, artists struggling against the grid of society find spiritual renewal. Uh, there's this Christian iconography that you've mentioned of the dove or the baptism or something like that. The description of mumblecore seems to me to be antithetical to some of the Christian messages of renewal. That is to say, you know, words like stasis, uh, words like, you know, in the description of, um, uh, you know, inarticulateness, stasis, kind of lostness, stuckness, seem to me to be uh, not necessarily what the Christian message, you know, or the spiritual message is about. You know, Christian message is supposed to be about hope, gospel, good news. <laughs> you, you don't have to be stuck right. in some ways. And so I, I guess my question, which I'm not articulating very fast or very well, is uh, would Christian mumblecore then be a contradiction in terms? Would it even be possible to have Christian mumblecore? Or is mumblecore an attitude or an orientation or experience which at its heart is not really compatible with Christian belief? That's a good question, Ken. <laughs> As I'm always apt to do, I'm apt to question all definitions and terms. You know, stepping back, there's that idea, is there any genre that we can think of that would be impossible, really, to make a Christian film in? Whatever we yeah. mean by a Christian film. And I think we can agree that there are. It'd be hard to do Christian porn, Certainly. you know. Although, I guess porn's yeah. not really a genre, you know, it would be yeah. – some people might say it's hard to do Christian horror, although I know a number of Christian friends who purport to be big horror fans. Right. I, you know, I, I certainly think some of the hyper-violent, you know, films that just wallow in hyper-violent scenes, it would be hard to make a Christian film out of that, although we did have yeah. The Passion. 
Or Scott Derrickson, who's a very famous Christian filmmaker. I mean, he cut his teeth doing one of the Hellraiser movies, um, you know, which I haven't seen. Sure. It's probably not horror porn like Saw, but is I, I imagine is with the name like Hellraiser is probably pretty violent. Right. Perhaps it's difficult. And I, and I do agree the idea of stasis, inarticulateness, or even this idea that mumblecore movies are made by you know, various people who are not driven by ideas, passions, or even a desire to make their way in the world. Kind of, you know, the American Christian vision of itself is certainly not without passion, without ideas, that sort of thing. And it, it would, it seems to be difficult or it would seem to be to me to be difficult to make a Christian mumblecore film. That's about transformation. Yeah. Yeah. I think you put your finger on it because there's, then I, I I get the feeling maybe I'm not being fair to mumblecore, but then you know it's hard to be fair if you don't understand something. Um, but you know I get the feeling like in mumblecore, like there is a kind of self indulgent quality to it that I distrust, which is to say uh, we want to wallow in it. You know, it's like um, whereas I think Christian or a spiritual mindset is about hope, and, and so I you know. Mm -hmm. I, I would say, you know, a Christian might get caught in the grid or feel caught in the grid, but a Christian would always want to get out of the grid. The, the notion of, of I don't want to make my way in the world. I just kind of want to sit here and lament my stuckness. It, you know, it kind of gives me that same vibe of, of some of the romantic poets who seem to be more interested in documenting their suffering than they do in ending it. You know, someone like, uh, you know, mm. Percy Shelley, who's like, oh, I cast myself on the thorns of life. I bleed, I bleed. Everyone look at me bleeding and feeling sorry for, for myself. And I always feel that kind of self-indulgent quality in mumblecore, which is to say, on the one hand, I rail against my suffering, but on the other hand, I kind of embrace it because that's my distinctive and I'm more put upon than you. I'm, you know, I'm the generation that suffers more than you are, you know, than you are, that is more stuck than you are. And, and so it, it would be hard for me to make that compatible with a Christian message because like a Christian message would seem to me to be, there is, there is a way to get out of the grid. That's not the end. There is hope. There is good news. I mean, I, I get the feeling like these guys in Glitch in the Grid want to get out of the grid, that that they're not doing that, yes. you know, so maybe it's not mumblecore, you know, because I think sort of the quality of the self-indulgent quality of mumblecore, you know, or almost that celebration of the stasis or the stuckness. I don't see that in, in Glitch in the Grid. But on the other hand, I also don't see them actually getting out of it, you know, or wanting to get out of it. I mean, I see them wanting to get out of it, but I don't see them actually believing that they can. So on the one hand, I have a hard time calling it Mumblecore. On the other hand, I have a hard time calling it Christian. So I guess if I don't really think it's Christian, I don't really think it's Mumblecore, then it can't really be Christian Mumblecore. That could be. And certainly, I mean, toward the end, there's this interesting bit where the two guys that are in Hollywood, L.A. area, have invited the third to come and stay with them. And at, at some point they get sick of him because all he does is hang around. He doesn't do the dishes. They're out doing whatever menial jobs they've been able to cobble together and come back. 
and they're getting very frustrated. And they, they basically yes. say, leave. Yes, we invited you to come. Right. Leave. They have an attitude towards him and, that we have towards them. Yes, I invited you into my DVD player, but now I'm getting sick of you, so please leave. If the film is trying to have some sort of Christian message, that might have been a moment where, you know, because they're, they're trying to you know, give this guy some encouragement, you know, maybe. But there doesn't seem to be anything spiritual about they're getting sick of him. It's just, you know, I come home and the dishes aren't done. You know, there's dirty dishes everywhere. I'm sick of that. That's not a real spiritual message or a spiritual path towards hope. And so I guess, you know, the transformations that I do see don't seem to have anything to do with the Christianity that they talk about. It just has to do with, you know, people getting well, tired of low. But I mean, I guess maybe that could go back to, I mean, that could be a critique of society and, and including a critique of the Christian presence in society. I can go back to your comment about him appropriating the language, but not really believing it. That is to sort of say, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's sort of an adoption of the language of Christianity, but not necessarily the action of Christianity. And, it, you know, this generation could very well say, well, that's all we've ever seen and that's all we've ever known. It's hard for us to act like authentic Christians, you know, because that's seen. not something we've ever experienced or even know uh, what it would look like. You, you know, we're just parroting what the society has told us and and you know if that looks indistinguishable from the grid it's maybe the church has conformed more to the world than it wants to admit and it's hard for us we hear the message of the church and we can appropriate the language but it's hard for us to really see much authentic difference in our lives between those people who are spouting the message of the church and those people who are living in the grid in other ways. And so we may then sense that there's a difference in there, but how do we really find it? Sure. And this kind of comes back to when we were, you know, the original question of can there be Christian mumblecore or can this genre, can mumblecore genre host or be a Christian film? You know, the other question side of that for me would be, it all depends on what you're using the genre for. Because I, I could very much easily see a Christian wanting, wanting to document this right. is the spirit of the age. And you know, here is a representation of it. This is what it looks like. You know, here are its faults. And even implicating the church and critiquing the church for its part in creating the milieu. And that could be a very valid you know, truth-telling if that's what is yeah that's a good do. point and i want to retract or clarify something i said earlier i said rather cheekily you know oh well i don't look at this as a christian film and i certainly did not mean by that oh the people who made this film are not christian because i don't know them no. um and i don't purport to be able to pass judgment on their spiritual state based on uh, the movie that they created. When, when, you know, when I talk about the film being a, a Christian film, meaning I'm having a hard time extracting a rec, you know, a recognizable to me Christian message from the film, from the film. And so, you know, I just want to make sure I clarify that, you know, that I'm not trying to, uh, say anything about people who made the film and whether they were Christian or not. No, and I think that's a, that's a very important point to make. And it really, you know, does raise that that question of well, what do we mean when we say Christian film? 
And I think it's important, you know, in, in our opening to our episodes, we always say discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality mm-hmm. in film. And I think that's an important part of our mission is we're not talking about necessarily Christian films because that's a, that term, that label is very difficult. Right. Well, and that would take us into ground that we probably couldn't cover in the last two minutes of a podcast about, uh, but maybe that's going to be something that we'll save for another day or another episode to talk about specifically or overtly Christian films that have a market themselves to a Christian audience or, you know, use the art as a vehicle for a more overt Christian message like courageous or fireproof or facing the giants or, or maybe we will, in good mumblecore spirit, make a nod at attempt that we ought to do that someday and never quite get around to it. So it sounds like we're winding down. Did you have any final comments about glitch? Uh, well, you know, I'd just say that wanted to like to film more than I did. And certainly, uh, I would think listening back to our podcast, uh, someone might walk away from it saying that, you know, oh boy, they're saying it's not worth seeing. Certainly, if it was streaming on Netflix or you had it at a DVD, it might be worth picking up just for, you know, fast forward past the narrative parts and just uh, enjoy some of the animation that, you know, I, I think it's a value. But I might look for it on DVD, just particularly if you're an animation fan, because some of the animation might be interesting and just do a. Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Rainbow kind of thing, like turn off the sound and enjoy some of the enjoy some of the visuals. And I mean, I think there's some talent there, and I think there's some visual innovation there. And and you know, these are filmmakers who are, I, I think, probably still honing their craft as opposed to you know uh, fully arrived or, or mature filmmakers. So those some people who are always in the interest interested in looking out for new films or new techniques, you know, could find stuff in, in the animation. So I guess that's a long winded way of saying it's a rental, but you know, even saying it's a rental is different than saying, stay away. Don't waste your time. Yeah, I would agree. I think there, there's definitely some things here that's worth your time uh, to look at. Um, and I would agree. You know, these are young filmmakers. I, I'm actually, I'm interested in seeing their next project, um, seeing right. how they can develop from here. So, Well, thank you for listening to The Thin Place. If you have comments on this episode, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com to leave a comment, or you can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Moorfield or at his blog, onemorefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.